Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the All Might Be Edified Discussions on Servant Leadership. I'm Keith Pankow, and I have the wonderful privilege to be here with Chris Marone. I'm so excited to have him here today. I had the wonderful privilege to be with Chris when he engaged to his fiance. So always a special memory of mine with Chris, but I'll go ahead and read Chris's bio and we may talk about that later, but just a special memory. Every time I see him, I always remember that Chris started his career in politics. He was encouraged by all those around him to get involved and make the changes he wanted to see in the world. During his high school and undergraduate years, he worked with various political and policy organizations to help farm workers in the Sacramento Valley. He continued his passion for the elimination of bias and anti-racism during his time working at various levels of political campaigning and government. He has served in posts from Washington, D.C. to local city government in the pursuit of equity under the law. Currently, Chris is working with the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law as the Director of Employer Relations in the Office of Career and Employment Services. Previously, he was the Director of Continuing Legal Education Program at Arizona State University Law. In his current role, Chris is responsible for diversity summer clerkship hiring and advising. He meets with students of diverse backgrounds, encouraging and mentoring them into achieving their legal career goals while trying to diversify the legal profession. Chris has recently been tasked with overseeing the Pipeline to Law School program with Phoenix Unified School District with the focus of helping underserved communities get the tools needed to be successful in law school. Chris graduated in 2012 from Monterey College of Law in Monterey, California. During this time, he worked full-time, campaigned for members of Congress and local office, was president of the Student Bar Association and local chapter of the Delta Theta Phi. Chris and his wife, Megan, have been married for 10 years and are passionate about the advocacy and ending breed-specific legislation as they have a loving American Staffordshire Terrier and coaching Special Olympics baseball. Well, welcome, Chris. Great to have you today. Thanks, Keith, man. It's great to see you again. We uh, had some wonderful conversations as we were getting ready to hit the record button, and I just love some of the conversations we had, have always had, and just every time I see your, even your social media posts, they're just refreshing. And one of the things I wanted to start with was a memory that you reminded me of as you were talking about one of the concepts we might discuss today. And recently we had the opportunity to develop our own identity map in a course that I was working on. And it was really kind of difficult for me to really dive into my own identity. My mom, we recently discovered, was adopted out of the Tulalip tribes in Northwestern Washington. And as I dug into my own identity, and we didn't find this out till after she was deceased, and as we reconcile with what that meant, that she was one of those missing indigenous women and you know how that related to her life. And I started to realize that my own identity was so complex and so contradictory in a lot of ways that any of the ways my own identity at times pushed me to fight against myself in ways that society would accept or not accept you in different realms. And so throughout my life, I found that I was either rebelling or fighting against, you know, jumping into wholesale acceptance into a group. And so as I look at this, I think about how do we, you know, kind of as servant leaders learn to help people recognize their whole self and then embrace their whole identity to get the best out of them as they come to the teams that they work in our environments. Individuals are 
are a funny conundrum, right? We're all different, but we're all trying to seek kind of the same communal ideas of being valued and being loved and being felt a part of something. I think of my own journey and and I know we talked about it a little bit earlier, but I am a huge advocate for therapy. Everybody, every individual on the face of this planet today, living today, should be in therapy, whether it's you know, dealing with direct result trauma from childhood issues or family issues, or just needing a place to vet your ideas and to make sure that you're having a healthy life or you're in a good mental space mindset. The statistics show across the board that most people, not just most Americans, suffer some sort of mental issue, whether it's depression or non-diagnosed, any sort of mental disorders. And so through my therapy, I found that a lot of my childhood traumas growing up the way that I did influenced how I wanted to get into an in-group or to be part of a community. And once I realized that my entire identity was based on feeling accepted, feeling heard, and feeling loved, I was able to harness that into not just how I serve on the teams that I serve on and lead the people that I leave, but how I interact with every person that I come across with or how I really try to make that valiant effort. I just thought of the story. A few months ago, I was sitting in a church meeting and the head of the men's group that I was sitting in in the elders quorum, he asked for a person to name every other man in the room. And after four or five failed attempts from from different guys, I raised my hand and I went through and I named every one. And it wasn't because I was trying to show off or I was trying to be like, oh, I know everybody in the room or I'm the I'm the big man on campus. It made me realize that people need to be recognized. They need to be heard. They need to be understood. They need to at least feel like you've given that short amount of time to know their name, to know what their issue is, and to be able to say, I can empathize or I'm going to challenge your beliefs, or, you know, this is a person that I don't want to be around, which I think is also incredibly important for mental health and for leadership is understanding that you aren't the person that can save every individual in their own traumas or in their own opinions or in their own lifestyle, but you can show them enough love to know that you recognize them and know who they are. Yeah, that's some powerful thoughts that you just shared. And I think at the very foundation we can all become more mentally aware, right? We mm-hmm. can be better equipped to approach our own self-reflection, our own self-identity, our own ability to recognize how we cope, our own ability to recognize our own mental state. But also, mm-hmm. in addition to that, if we really want to be servant leaders, we can become more mental aware to recognize the people around us and what mm-hmm. things are good for them, what things aren't good for them. Like you said, we might not be the person that's the best to help them in their certain situation or even their past trauma. But if we are mental aware or, you know, whatever that situation is, whether it's anxiety, Mm -hmm. depression, or just, they just need better coping mechanisms. It's not anything detrimental or even needs medication, but just Mm -hmm. needs better coping mechanisms. If we understand those concepts, we can get them with people that can help them. We're around people that will be positive influences for positive growth in their life. And I just think such a good thought. I recently listened to a podcast. I'm trying to remember the name of it, but I'll look for a link to link it to the show notes because he talked about how that he was a therapist that talked about how that's one of the things we could do as a society is we could educate ourselves better on mental awareness and I think that that's exactly what you're talking about for ourselves and for others. 
a lot of times we deal with people who don't want to deal with their mental issues. Like they feel like, and I think this is where we get a lot of misunderstandings in our society between groups, organizations, individuals, is that what I've been taught or what I'm feeling is the absolute right way or right answer to do things. We often see, and I see this a lot in teams that I work on, I work on several different teams trying to do things, is that the most dangerous phrase in any language is this is how we've always done it, or this is the way we've always done it. And I always love to challenge that mode of thinking because if we kept that mode of thinking, we would still be in horse and buggies, or we would still be in steam powered boats, or we would still be using analog telephones. Like if, if this is the way that we've always done it and it works for us, great. For a time and a season, that may have been the best possible way to do things. But what's a more innovative way or what's a more inclusive way or what's a more efficient way of doing these things? And I find that the five minutes that I spend in every conversation with any person that I meet with, whether one-on-one -on -one or in a group, and asking about how's your mental health? How's your wife? How's your husband? How's your partner? How's your kids? How are the Dodgers doing? Or knowing that like, Right now, you're wearing an LSU shirt. So I know that last night, Joe Burrow completely buried Tom Brady. We can talk about these things that connect us on a level that brings down the stress level in the room if it's a high-class meeting, or it lets you know that I know a little bit about you. I care about what you're looking at. So let's have that four or five minutes of what people sometimes refer to as wasted space or dead space, and let's fill it with something so we can feel more connected as people because then when it comes time for me to ask you to do something or it comes time for me to be like, hey, Keith, you really dropped the ball on this assignment. I, you know, I expected more from you. This is what we got. Let's figure out how we can work it. You're more open to receive praise and you're more open to receive criticisms or constructive criticisms because you know that for those five minutes in every meeting, I check on how your kids are doing or making sure that your life is in order. Because our jobs are not who we are and they don't define us. Our callings in churches or our volunteer service aren't who we are. They aren't define us. All of the things define us as one individual, not one individual part. And so we need to be cognizant of that every time we go in and talk to somebody. Yeah, I love that. And I'm a strong believer that all of us need to be stretched at times mm -hmm. to get better and to continue to grow. But if we don't know the people around us, we're going to completely miss how and when to offer those opportunities to stretch and grow. And right. sometimes we think that people just don't want to grow, don't want us oh to be gosh. stretched, but yeah. we just issue the challenge at the wrong time. We're completely oblivious and we misread the situation or the scenario so badly that we right. set people up failure. And if we take the time to do all the things that you're talking about, we can set ourselves up better to not only know the timing, but also to recognize the right thing to offer that person for their mm -hmm. unique circumstances. And I think that's what, as leaders, we need to be doing that more frequently. I find myself in the leadership roles that I have, it's less my ideas that were being implemented. It's less my leadership goal. You know, I know what the end goal is, right? It is the end goal to do a million dollars in sales. Okay. That's my end goal. How are we going to get there? Oftentimes in the leadership that, that I work in and the people that I work with and the teams that I work on, I have no clue how we're going to accomplish our goal. I don't have a step-by-step -step process on how we're going to get to 10,000 in sales and then $20,000 in sales to a million dollars in sales if that's our goal, right? My goal right now is diversifying the legal profession. That's what I do. That's the main focus of my job. 
how do I do that? How do I diversify the legal profession? Well, I need community stakeholders and I need individuals and I need people who disagree with me on whether or not we need to diversify the legal profession. I need people who can have educated debates without becoming personal attack. I need all of these things to accomplish this overarching, which I think is a very important goal. But man, I need other people to lead me in the direction that it's going to get there because I am not and will never be an expert in being a diverse candidate, right? You see my pictures. I am a upper middle class white male. The legal profession is designed for me to succeed. I cannot relate to African-American men or women or members of the LGBTQIA community. Or this morning I met with a student who is Korean, but she was adopted by Hispanic parents. So she has this weird dichotomy of Korean and Hispanic culture, and she's an engineer, which never happens. And so where does she fit into the legal community? And I take their leadership from their experiences and make that part of the pathway to success for all of us. That was wonderful. And you think about that student that with that Korean and Hispanic influence, and that right. is the, it's also an engineer going to the legal profession. When we really mm -hmm. kind of take that example, that microscopic example, that is the power of diversity in one right. small viewpoint. Because you have all these different diverse influences merging together. Right. And then you have all these different things that kind of converge on this one individual to show that that person wants to move around in different arenas and then the natural element, like you said, that's not normal, right? So right. those diverse influence create things that aren't normal. And that's what we want. That's the yes. gift. That's the power of diversity. If we learn to harness it, not mm -hmm. not just the check marks of diversity, but if we truly harness the power of diversity and bring these people in together to intersect those charts and those graphs that we create and kind of mm -hmm. pull those influences together in a way that harmonize and actually allow those influences to flourish, that's where right. we can build from it and also learn to say, oh, that's how you do it. Well, we do it here. And how's the most efficient way from both those paths to build an even better path? Not even just the most efficient, but the most influential or the most game-changing, right. beneficial right. for whatever goal we're trying to accomplish. Right. And by creating those paths, you automatically liberate others to see that there's that pathway for them to go down. A lot of times, especially dealing with, with people who you know may not have had a diverse interaction or had epically good leaders, right? There's not an army in a workforce that have had amazing leaders and they all understand how it goes. There's work trauma that you have to deal through, right? And so being able to help people get past their own impediments, oftentimes we are our own worst enemies in advancement or in growth or in anything, really. Helping them to realize that they are of value is one of the greatest achievements you can get. There's been years where I've missed my mark on every achievable metrics that you can measure, right? My candidates didn't get elected. The bills that I was lobbying for didn't get passed. I didn't get this student a job, you name it. But seeing people realize that now there's a place for them or a pathway for them in an arena that they never thought possible, that in itself is the metrics by which at least I judge success in my personal life. You know, if I'm not an effective at getting people elected, I'm not going to be able to run campaigns anymore. I get that. And if I'm not effective at getting people jobs 
in the legal field, I'm not going to have a job anymore. Understand that matrix. But again, we're more than our jobs. So if I can get people to realize that they can do so much more than the little box they put themselves into, that's the biggest win that I have that I can take home at night and tell my wife about or to share with you or to share with anybody else that not every win's a million bucks, but every little win like that, that's going to be worth a million bucks easily. Awesome. Powerful thoughts there. I want to talk, step back and kind of dive into this work trauma a little bit, because I think that's something that we're seeing more and more. And we talked about kind of, you know, so many people leaving the workforce now that we're coming back from COVID or not wanting to come back to work. And I've talked to a lot of people that I respect about it. And we seem to think that what we're seeing more so than what people want to recognize is, is leadership failures. And, mm-hmm. and more than people just not wanting to come back to work, we're writing this off on the individuals. But what, what the real problem is, is exactly what you're talking about. There's a lot of work trauma. There's a lot mm-hmm. of leadership failures. So how do we wrap our arms around these individuals and kind of bring them back into the fold and help them become more productive members of our teams again? We used to live in a one-size-fits-all society, right? Everybody went to work. You went eight to five for most people, right? You went to work, you went eight to five. You had the the stupid commute from the suburbs into the big city. And now we're realizing more and people are realizing more that meeting individuals and individual teams where they're at is what really makes a team successful. I have to be in office. And I get that because my job is meeting with students at a law school. Yes, some students prefer to meet on Zoom. That is always 100% an option. Always an option, but I have to meet with students face to face because that's what makes them feel comfortable. Now, in a post COVID world, can I take precautions? Yes. If I want to wear a mask, if I want to meet outside, if I want to do a lot of different things, stay six feet apart, all of that stuff, all of those are available to me, but also some people just want to meet in person. And as someone who wants to help them grow, I have to realize that I have to lead them in that I'm going to meet you where you're at. And we have to realize that some teams, right? We have a Let's take my law school, for example, where I work at. We have teams that never, ever are public facing at all. It's not unreasonable for someone who sits at a computer for 10 hours a day to sit at home. It's not unreasonable. But we get caught up in this idea of this is how we've always done it. We've always been in the building. We always have found more collaboration. And the people who are saying that is I have, I have found collaboration this way. It makes me more comfortable to, to have everybody in the room. I like to be able to walk down to an office and talk to somebody. I have a great, I had a great, absolute wonderful mentor and he was my old boss. He, he went off to a law firm now who absolutely loved walking out of his office and having a brainstorm conversation at your office door. Even if he had the decision already made in his head, he wanted to just kind of talk it out a little bit and get some consumer feedback. And he talked about how hard it was for him allowing all of us to pick one or two days to work from home because then he wouldn't have that sounding board. But he realized that his need for a sounding board did not outweigh our mental health desires of being able to work from home or to seeing ourselves as someone who could have that flexibility to be treated like a professional. That's pretty forward thinking for him. Whereas I've seen other bosses where they're like, especially in law firms, you have to be in the office. I have to teach you in office how to be the type of lawyer that I am because I view myself as a successful lawyer. Your success may be dollars and cents, 
My success may be coaching my son's baseball team. And so when we don't meet people where they're at, then we really lose out on their ability to contribute to a team in such a positive way. And I think we see that over and over and over again, that oftentimes the leader or the the head of an organization, not so much the leader, but the person in charge, sees that their way and their pathway of getting to that position is the only pathway to take. And if you don't take that pathway, you're not going to be a success in whatever you do. Yeah, I like that a lot. And I think one kind of thought process that you seem to have taken on that you wanted to highlight today too is this idea of the importance of seeking opinions and training that you don't agree with or understand. Oh my gosh, yes. So I wanted to dive into that a little bit more because I completely agree with that mindset because if we always, not just say we've always done things the right way, but if we ourselves only look for sounding boards that are the same as us. If, I love that example of your boss because he might've had the idea already, but he wanted feedback. You know, Maybe mm-hmm. it was different than he was checking himself just to look. And I think we need to look for those opportunities outside of ourselves, get that the gift of diversity of those mm-hmm. opinions and especially outside of our comfort zone or what we might agree with. And so Can you talk a little bit about some examples you might have with how to do that or what to look for? And I think to do it from a source of humility where you can really learn. My first ever example with that is when I was in high school, I worked for a California state assembly member who was of the opposite political party of mine. And I always wondered why he he brought me onto staff. I was very vocal. I was never a quiet kid. I was very vocal about what my opinions are and what my beliefs are. And he brought me onto his office and I worked for him for four years in, from high school into undergrad. And I lost every argument. I never once changed his opinion. I never once won a bill that I wanted him to vote on. I never, ever, ever I never had a win while at that time. I look back on it now and every argument I had was a win with that man. And it was because he hired me on because he knew that I wanted to disagree with him. And he believed that that voice is needed in his office. So that way he didn't go off the rails of some direction that would be bad because he's elected by all the people, not just the people that voted for him. And to this day, I have a deep respect for him. But man, has he gotten everything wrong with politics? (laughs) Like he is just Like, I cannot agree with a single bill he sponsored. I don't agree with anything. But I go back. I just talked to him when um, my wife and I went home for the Thanksgiving break. And I talked to him for a little while. And I was just, you know, the man, I have deep respect for him. But I disagree with every aspect of of what he does. And he told me, he's like, He's like, I didn't hire you to be a yes person. He's like, I could have went to the political party. And I could have gotten three people that all would have said, I walk on water. He's like, but that's that's not the point. The point is that there's opposition in all things. And the point is that you surround yourself by with smart people who disagree with you. And that way you don't end up in an echo chamber, which I really feel that that's the world that we're in right now, is that we're all in this giant echo chamber that nobody wants to step out of, that nobody wants to be like, okay, maybe you do have a point. Like, we just, we're not there. I think- If I had lived in an echo chamber or if I had viewed every argument that I had with this now Congress member, but was assembly member, I don't think I've ever would have grown as a person because I just would have stood and said, this is the best way that I can live my life. This is the best thing I can do. And 
I'm 40 years old. I've, I've done a lot of things in my life. I've led a bunch of teams. I've, I've worked in, in, you know, very high levels of government and statewide stuff. Man, if I would have thought that at 19 years old that I was doing the best that I could possibly be, I'd probably be dead in a gutter somewhere because that's not the best Chris Marone is not 19 year old Chris Marone. It's not 40 year old Chris Marone. And you surround yourself with people who see the world differently than you because they will help you and coach you either to reinforce that you're right on this point or show you how wrong you really are. I've gotten some things horrendously wrong in my life. I've made ginormous mistakes. I, and I don't know if I'm the only person who does this. Sometimes I think I am, but I was sitting last night talking with my in-laws and my wife and we were having dinner and I flashed back to a memory of when I was a complete idiot and in that moment, I relived that embarrassment for like five seconds and then did one of my coping mechanisms that I do and got back into the conversation. And I think like, what if my life was a string of all of these embarrassing moments? Would I be the person that, that I am today working with the people that I am today? And the answer is no, because I've been blessed enough to have people around me tell me that that was an embarrassing moment, to have them influence my life, to tell me like, that was something stupid that you said. Or that was idiotic that you said. The best example is always the one that I didn't do. And it was my boss who came and asked. And he was talking to a female coworker of ours. And he asked if she was pregnant. And she wasn't. And if you're not in the room to say, hey, that's a stupid question to ask a female at any point in time. I don't care if she's in the delivery room. You don't ask her if she's pregnant. Like, you never ask those questions. He would have never known. And he would have just kept going on and continuing asking those questions. And we could take it one step deeper is I do a lot of training for implicit bias and recognizing those biases now. Um, and one of the things we look at is that I was doing a training in Santa Monica and you would think that LA is a pretty diverse place. And during the training, a guy, you know, we're talking about, you know, our implicit bias. Do we look at a job application and see, um, you know, Chris Marone or Keith Pankow? And then we see like Samir Albalin and do we hire or interview Chris and Keith because we don't like the name Samir. And so we were talking about one of the practical ways is you cut names off of resumes or you black them out. So that way you could just see their, they both went to LSU for undergrad. They went to Tulane for law school and now they're applying for a job at X firm. We have blank. We have candidate one, who's Keith, candidate two, who's Chris, candidate three, who's Samir, and Samir has a bunch more credentials. Well, then the law firm is going to interview the guy with a bunch more credentials. And I had a guy raise his hand and he goes, well, what's wrong with judging people on their names? Maybe I don't want a Muslim working at my place. And it's like that type of implicit bias. He's not like, I don't want to have a Muslim working in my place because fill in X racist thought or xenophobic thought about being Muslim. He just doesn't like having someone different at his location. That's your implicit bias. You may not be donning KKK robes and burning crosses in the town square, but on levels, you're internalizing your biases against a group based on things that immutable characteristics that they can't change. He can't change that his name is, well, I mean, he could change his name, but he can't change where he's from. He can't change what family or what lineage he was born into. And moving away from that or surrounding yourself with people who don't have the same lineages or experiences as you only strengthens your leadership because then you're able to empathize more with communities around you. I can empathize more with African-American communities or 
LGBTQIA communities because I've surrounded myself with people that are willing to put me in my place when I step out of line. Yeah, and that's so powerful too, because I think we have to acknowledge that there's a lot of people that don't want to change because they get comfortable doing it. And most of us don't want to change to a certain right. degree, but there's people that don't want to change at all. And they, right. so in those situations, diversity to them does feel like a bad thing. And so, mm -hmm. and when you look at that implicit bias, there is some instances where people really want to shy away from any form of diversity whatsoever, be, not because of racism, like you said, or, but because they don't want anything that will push them outside of their standard path with, they want no forms of deviation whatsoever. And now you do a, also, you have a partner that you started some educational training and a, a company, mm -hmm. I believe, focused on diversity, equity, and, and inclusion. And now I have this strong kind of belief that a lot of the diversity, equity, and inclusion training we do is, is far too surface level all yes. throughout corporations, throughout the government, throughout school. I think it's just meant to kind of, you know, check a, a box. It's, it's really doesn't move the needle diversity wise. And so, what are you doing to kind of get to the core of creating more diversity, equity, and inclusion? And, and kind of tell us a little bit about what your focus is. Yeah. So um, my partner, Ray, and I, Ray English, he and I have toured the country for the last four or five years doing basic diversity, implicit bias, equity, and inclusion and belonging trainings. We did them because a lot of jurisdictions in America have a lawyer education requirement or continuing legal education requirement that lawyers take an hour every three years on diversity, equity, and inclusion training or implicit bias training. So what we've seen over the last five years is that it's this surface level recognizing implicit bias, doing the Harvard implicit bias test, seeing where your blind spots are and just recognizing them. And then they stop, right? If I know that my blind spot is I don't like Asian Americans. Okay, I got a blind spot. I don't like Asian Americans. Great, I'm done. That's where most of the training stopped. And so Ray and I started developing a couple of courses within the Phoenix legal community where we're based about, all right, now you've recognized that there's a diversity issue at your location. What are you going to do about it? How are you going to train people? And we do a discussion, we do, it's three levels, right? We do your intro surface level, like this is what implicit bias is, this is what diversity, equity, inclusion can be. Here's your CLE hours, if that's all you want, here you go. And then we do a second and third step, which is let's talk about how to make your specific firm or your corporation or your NGO or nonprofit, how do we make your firm more diverse accepting and how to diversify, what are some ideas? And one of the things that we have found is diversity being a very big buzzword right now, law firms and businesses are hoping it dies off. They're hoping that it's just another fad, that we're going through a diversity, like we went through affirmative action in the 80s, you know, now we're going through diversity. Now, like, let's just ride out the storm. And that comes from a generation of bosses, CEOs, managing partners that all may have been, and this is generally speaking, it's not all, but generally speaking, they are of older generations. They've been practicing law or they've been in business for the last 30 or 40 years. We get these mid-level managers that are all about diversity, equity, and inclusion training. So the next, the guys that are training to be CEO, training to be managing partners, they're really into it because they see 
the power that diversity has. And one of the great things I feel about the internet, and believe me, we could do an entire hour of things that I don't like about the internet, but it has really allowed people to see through others' eyes, to see others' experiences. I grew up in a very small town in California. I did not understand any sort of diversity until I went to college at 18 years old because there was no diversity and there was no internet when I was growing up in the area that I grew up. So all I knew was lower class, white, small town farmers. That's it. That was my exposure and some Mexican farmhands and field workers. That that was my diversity experience. So when I went to college and thought, no, I'm, I'm not racist. I'm not prejudiced. I have Mexican friends. I have white friends. I believe that all people are equal. And then I get to college and I perpetuate the system that allows for systematic barriers for people of color or people of lower socioeconomic status to be able to gain access to the college that I got into so easily. Then I started to realize what diversity is. It isn't just having, you know, I have Keith who's white. I have Chris who's white. I have Ray who's black. I have Joan who's black. I've got Darcy who's Asian. Look, we're diverse. Diversity is about internalizing both yourself and your organization to see what barriers are there that are stopping inclusion from happening. And that could be as simple as we only hire from this one prep school that's $100,000 a year to send your students to, but it's open to everyone, you get that class of people. And so our second level of training is looking at what barriers does your business have? What sort of things does your business engage in that doesn't allow for diverse people to look at and see themselves working in that business? And then the third step to it is now let's make plans for changing your business model. Not how you make money or how you get clients, but how do you hire? How do you promote? What are you advertising to to build out your diverse network? And for some companies, you don't want diversity? Keep on keeping on. That's your prerogative. It's your company. I'm not going to force you to believe what I believe. But for some of these companies and these law firms that we've worked with, we're getting really good transformative results of them doing very, very simple things, removing the partners from the associates hiring committee is one seemingly non-diverse way of changing up a company, but added for so much diversity because the partner had implicit bias against hiring certain individuals. Changing your slogan on your website to be more inclusive, that's something that can attract more people to build out your diversity. There's so many little tweaks that we do as our organization to help businesses just make incremental changes to create diversity and a welcoming place for diversity. And now that I think about it, we've also recommended huge changes, right? Where do you donate your money as an organization when it comes time to, to get tax break? Who do you donate it to? What are you, what sort of things are you involved in? What community outreach do you do? Are you, are you always at the prep school's signature dinner or are you at a soup kitchen? Are you donating to Phoenix Pride Parade, or are you only donating to like St. Vincent de Paul? It all shows where do you spend your time? What sort of things are you giving your time to? That's what's going to reflect whether or not people are going to want to come and be a part of what you're doing. Yeah, I love this. Uh, I know that we have some other things to get to today, so I don't want to tie up your time too much. <laughs> but if we have time for just one more question, I, just, I was of course. thinking about it. We, 
We just recently researching self-determination theory in one of our classes and talks about we all have these psychological needs to to have autonomy, connectedness, and relatedness in our own drives. And it talks about how barriers that you talk about it. And so often we studied, you know, in academic settings and different work settings, there's these discontinuities that arise that where it's in I love the work that you're doing that kind of call out some of these barriers and even these discontinuities that exist where mm-hmm. these companies may think that they have diversity, inclusion, and equity, but they're you know, pointing out these discontinuities where they truly don't and and where you might have smidgens or a little bit of path, but there's a discontinuity that exists in helping them understand exactly what that discontinuity is and just the language that they use, right? Just how that yes. language might just be, you know, eliminate some of that relatedness or connectedness, or even the way they manage how it can limit the autonomy that an individual feels. And that's why servant leadership is so powerful is because if we're truly looking at the individuals, if we're becoming servant leaders, we're giving a lot more autonomy to the people. And I think we talked a little bit about this as we were preparing and And the power of just even being a servant leader when you have no authority over the teams you're managing, how you can be a great leader even when you have no authority by exhibiting some of the principles of servant leadership. And I just thought this was such a great question to end on because you exhibited such a a wonderful trait as you talked about all these teams you work with where you have zero authority as a leader, but you bring these teams together in an amazing way. So I just wanted to see if you'd talk a little bit about that as we close up today. We could talk about this for days, Keith. I, I really enjoy having having these types of conversations, but I serve on several different teams in within the law school and within my church life and within my home life. I serve I mean, we could break up all of our family teams as well, right? Which ones do we play on, which ones we don't? And there's a project management theory about, you know, non-authoritative leadership. And I have no authority to direct your work or direct your time or direct anything, but I need to get something completed that moves this project along that we're all working towards this end goal. And I have always found the easiest way, and I fall back to this all the time, is humble service. Asking someone to help you out. I don't understand. I don't get this. I need to get this moving. How can, you know, going to somebody who views themselves as an expert in a certain field then going to them in humility and asking for their help, it works almost 100% of the time. And it, it may not work on the timetable that I'm looking for, right? I may come to you and go, Keith, hey, I really need help in this aspect. You know, I'm trying to figure this out. And you're going to come back to me and go, hey, I can't help you right now, but I have time tomorrow or the next day or something to that effect. You get it done. And the people who are who help you usually get this very good feeling about contributing about feeling valued very appreciative of someone like you know yourself coming to them and you don't have to be a leader in an organization right you could be a line level janitor asking for someone's help and people are more than willing to do that and i think because people want to feel wanted they want to feel needed that sort of validation comes from all sorts of things and so when i'm working on my teams and i need to move a project forward Automatically, I'm always, again, like I said, that first three or four minutes when I'm having a discussion with someone, it's always about them. What's going on in their life? What are they doing? And even if I don't know them, I will go to their office and I could pick up context clues, right? I'm looking at you, Keith, right now on the Zoom, and I could see that there's a picture, like a Greg Aaron's picture in the background above your head. I could see a white shirt hanging on the door. There looks like a couple books that are church-related, one's in Spanish. Like I've picked up three things. You're wearing an LSU shirt. There are four things now that I can talk to you about that even if I didn't know you, 
right? Who's your favorite artist? Why do you have that picture in the background? Do you like LSU? Do you like their football team? Did you go to LSU? That book in Spanish, do you speak Spanish? Have you spent time in a Spanish-speaking nation? All of those things I just picked up by looking at the Zoom screen that we're on, right? And if I could start the conversation with any of those things and then transition into, Keith, I really need your help on this. Most people are going to respond very positively to that because you've taken an interest in who they are and what they do, and then you've asked them for your help. You're coming to them hat in hand saying, I don't know this, and I know you do. Someone has told me that you know this. Can you spare a few minutes to help me out? And more times than not, people respond to that because it makes them feel needed and connected and loved. And those are the three things that really everyone's looking for, whether it's at home or at work or anywhere else, is they just want to be noticed. And that's what you do. I totally, totally agree. Well, thanks so much for being here, Chris. Any final comments before we wrap up today? I just, I think it's incredibly important to shift away from the authoritarian, I say you do this and you do this. In any aspect, in every aspect of our lives, if you want to lead people, you should be out front doing and asking for help. And people, and you should, and if you're walking a pace that's faster than everyone else, slow down or consequently bring them up to your pace because people need to be met where they're at and they need to be shown love where they're at. And where I'm at versus where you're at versus where the person who needs help is at are three different places. And if I want to move this along, this work along, whether it's my work or my home or my church or my nonprofit or my business, I got to see where everyone else is and make sure that I'm there with them to bring them along. It's no longer this rising tide rises raises all boats idea. It is now we are individually raising boats to make sure that individuals feel safe on the water. Beautifully said. Well, thanks everyone for joining us. If you like the podcast, go ahead and add a rating so other people can find it. And thanks for joining us on another episode of the All Might Be Edified Discussions on Servant Leadership. Have a wonderful day.